Today on Know the Truth, a new message from Philip DeCourcy. Paul dies all used up, down to the last drop. That's challenging, isn't it? Paul refused to treat life as something to be hoarded. No, life is not something to be saved. Life is something to be spent. That's the way you and I ought to live. Are you being poured out for the kingdom? Welcome to Know the Truth, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Many people have regrets on their deathbed, but the Apostle Paul had none. He had fully finished the race God set before him. Today, Philip DeCourcy gives us biblical insight on how we too can live a faithful life of service to God unto the very end. It's a brand new message titled Finishing Well from the Without Apology series on living out your faith with courage. If you want to access other lessons in this thought-provoking study, you'll find them at ktt.org. Here's Pastor Philip. Just recently, I finished a wonderful book by David McCullough on the American spirit. I commend it to you. It's a thrilling book that tells the story of who we are and what we stand for as a nation. Reading these several seminars that he gave throughout America about the story of this nation, you're confronted with the providence of God, the inspiring love of freedom throughout our history, the emergence of a new and radical nation among the nations, the bravery of our citizens, the brilliance of our founders, and the undying devotion of many to the possibilities that America presents. In fact, as I was reading the book, I find myself a new hero, John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, President John Adams. He's an interesting man across his lifetime. He was an ambassador several times, a senator, He was Secretary of State and he himself became president at one point. But what's interesting, after he was president and stepped down, at the age of 63, he becomes a member of the House of Representatives. He's the oldest to ever have been inaugurated and he was the first to have been president and then later to become a congressman. And he will serve there for some 17 years from 1831 at the age of 63 to about 1848 when he dies around the age of 80. And the interesting thing is he dies in his seat in the House of Congress. He loved the place. He loved the theater. He loved the politics. He loved what it represented. There wasn't an hour in the House he missed. In fact, one congressman said of him, Mr. Adams belongs to no local district, no political party, but to the nation and its people. And when he dies in his seat, doing his job, one of the papers describes it as he died in harness. And as I read that in David McCullough's book, The American Spirit, I was struck by that phrase. And I knew I was coming up to a study in 2 Timothy 4 verses six to eight, and that word could describe the apostle Paul. He's about to die in harness. You see, John Quincy Adams died at his post. He died with his boots on. He died as he lived, serving and loving this nation. 
He gave the last drop of his life to the cause of American prosperity and progress. He died in harness. Paul here will die in harness. He has run his race. He has fought the fight. He has kept the faith. And guys, I love that kind of stuff. I want to be challenged by that kind of stuff. Any man worth his salt wants to die in harness, die with his boots on, die at his post. He wants to die having loved his wife till death separates them. He wants to die having brought up his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He wants to die wise having won souls. He wants to die having worked hard at his work. He wants to die having been faithful to God's house. He wants to die having fought the good fight of faith. He wants to die having served his generation by the will of God. He wants to die loyal to his friends. He wants to die a patriot. He wants to die having loved Jesus first and foremost. He wants to die in harness. He wants to finish well. He wants to die with as few regrets as possible. Amen? That's why I want to come and look at this passage with you, 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8, a message I'm going to call Finishing Well. We all want to be ready when God calls or death comes. So we're turning here to Paul's last letter. It's AD 67. This is Paul's swan song. He's written it about three to four years after his first letter to Timothy. It's personal, it's pastoral, it's passionate. Paul is coming down the home straight. He's about to cross the finishing line. And here in this passage, he's about to hand the baton off to Timothy. He wants to know there will be gospel continuity. That's one of the themes of this letter, gospel legacy, gospel continuity. In chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you heard from me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, he tells them to find some faithful man and pour his life into them as Paul poured his life into Timothy. In fact, in the section just before chapter 4, verse 14 of chapter 3, we read, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And so in the wider and the immediate context the whole context is gospel continuity. There are great transitions in the Bible. Joshua following Moses, Solomon following David, Elisha following Elijah, and now we have Timothy following Paul. In fact, in the immediate context, before we get into the verses themselves, this is the third reason that Paul gives for Timothy to preach the word faithfully. He charges him, doesn't he, in chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. And the first reason is Jesus is coming in judgment and you're accountable, verse 1. The second reason is for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, verse 3. And the third reason is for I'm ready to go. The time of my departure is at hand. I need to know that as I have preached the word faithfully, as I have discharged my charge, you will do the same. So let's come and look at this very tender 
and passionate and dramatic scene where Paul is addressing his young son in the faith for the last time, and he passes on some words of encouragement. He has finished well, and he wants Timothy to do the same. There are four things, the resolve, the review, the reward, the response. So let's look at the resolve. Verse six, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. This is Paul's resolve to give the last drop of his life to gospel endeavor and to gospel advancement. In one sense, Paul's life is about to be taken from him. His head will be severed from his shoulders. He will die soon enough as a martyr. His blood will splatter the ground. The candle of his life will be extinguished. But it's clear from verse six, in another very real sense, Paul is giving his life away. On the one hand, the Romans are taking it from him, but in another hand, Paul is willingly offering it to Christ and to the kingdom. Paul pictures his death as an offering. This phrase, poured out is a liturgical language, guys. If you go back to Numbers chapter 15 and other Old Testament passages, there's what's called the libation offering or the drink offering. And it was poured upon the burnt offering, the sacrifice for sin. After that offering had been consumed, a final and a, another offering would be added to it, the drink offering, and wine would be poured on that and it would evaporate and would give off a beautiful, sweet-smelling savor. And Paul is saying, hey, and maybe he's thinking about the fact that he won't be crucified as a Roman citizen. He's going to die by beheading and his blood will be spilt. And he's really, I think, in some ways imagining as the blood of his life splatters the ground when his head is severed from his shoulder, he's thinking, oh God, that's an offering to you. It's the drink offering. As the wine is poured out, my blood will be poured out in martyrdom. It's dramatic. It's vivid. It pictures martyrdom. It pictures his impending death as his final offering to God, his final act of faith, his final example of leadership, his final witness to a pagan culture. Philippians 1.20, right? Whether by life or by death, that Christ may be magnified in my body as we think about the resolve here, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. You and I would be reminded, and it's good to be reminded, that death needs to be a crowning moment. We need to rise up when death comes and we need to embrace it valiantly and victoriously. Death should be our final statement of faith our final act of worship, our final act of evangelism and witness to those who are watching, whether at home or in a hospital or wherever death seizes us. You need to plan your death. You need to think about your death. And where you're conscious and in charge of your faculties, you need to command the scene and give a confession of faith and leave a legacy to the family, and challenge the next generation. That's what Paul is doing here. Don't passively embrace death. Make it an act of worship. Make it a statement of faith. Our deaths need to be an exclamation mark, not a question mark. 
But here's the second thing. On the one hand, death needs to be a crowning moment. On the other hand, life needs to be a constant offering of ourselves to God and others. I want you to notice, it's inherent in the text, Paul dies all used up. There's nothing left in the tank. I'm being poured out. Is this the first time, Paul? No, I've been doing this my whole life. This is the crowning moment. This is the final act poured out down to the last drop. That's challenging, isn't it? Paul refused to treat life as a miser does his money, as something to be hoarded. No, life is not something to be saved. Life is something to be spent. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 15, Paul says, I'm willing to be spent for you. That's the way you and I ought to live. Are you being poured out into your wife and into your children and into this church and into global missions? Are you being poured out? Constantly spending and being spent for the kingdom. You know, there are two kinds of Christians, as one writer put it. There's the sink Christian who sees themselves as a sink and everybody else as a faucet. And so they're the sink. And so it's everybody else is there to serve them. Everybody else is there to fill them. Everybody is there to please them. But then there's the faucet Christian where they see themselves as the faucet and everybody else is the sink. And they pour themselves out into their wives and their children and their community and into their work and into their church. Are you a sink Christian or a faucet Christian? Jesus was a faucet. He didn't come to be served, didn't come to be a sink, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He poured out his life. And when his life is coursing through our life, we'll be the kind of Christian that pours out. We'll die all used up. Not be a lot left in the tank. So there's the resolve. It's challenging. Now, before I leave this point, or certainly verse 6, I want you to notice that on the one hand here, Paul pictures death as an offering. I am already being poured out. It's the libation. It's the drink offering from the Old Testament. But then he goes on to say, and the time, by the way, the word time there isn't chronos, it's kairos. The Greek word kairos means a season in time. So Paul's acknowledging here, look, I don't know if it's tonight, I don't know if it's tomorrow, I don't know if it's two or three days from now, but I'm pretty sure, unlike my first imprisonment, where I had a sense that I was going to be delivered, Philippians 1 verse 19, not this time. I'm in a season where death's coming. And probably, Timothy, I'm writing my final letter to you. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. It already is standing by me. But the word departure is the one that interests us because if Paul pictures death as a pouring out, he also pictures it as a packing up because this is a military term. It spoke of the soldier who would break camp and join the march. That's our Greek word to depart. It was a military term that spoke of the undoing of a tent and moving on. And this actually is a very interesting word. If you study it, I just want to do this for a moment or two just to help you understand how the Christian depicts death. On the one hand, it's an undoing 
of a tent. The battle is over. It's the march home. It also was used of the unyoking of an animal, the unharnessing of an animal, and the implication would seem to be here that death brings to us, in some sense, the end of labor, or at least strenuous labor. This word was used of the unlocking of a prison door, and that might indeed convey the idea that this life and these bodies of ours that have so much limitation and are subject to death will be free from that limitation. It was used of the unraveling of a knot. Many believe that's hinting at the fact that, you know what, there are many things that happen in life that are mysterious to us. God's providence is often inexplicable. Why, Lord? Why me? Why now? Why mine? And we need to be very much aware that, as Jesus says to the disciples, what I do now I can't tell you, but you'll know hereafter. And when we get to heaven, God will explain. It's also used of the unmooring of a ship, where it weighs anchor and heads out across the horizon and certainly again journeying to another place. Very rich word, isn't it? A very rich word. And the beautiful thing of it is that death is depicted in such positive terms. Because you see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed our view of death. It doesn't hold the same terror. In fact, Paul will say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And that's a commercial term. To die is a paying proposition. It's a profitable experience. Because when you die and go to heaven, life is explained perfectly. A new body is given. You rest from your labors and you enter into the joy of the Lord and it's pleasures forevermore. It's a wonderful thing. That's why, by the way, death needs to be and ought to be a crowning moment in our life. Wasn't it John Wesley, the Methodist leader who said of those early Methodists, my people die well? Let's move on. You've not only got the resolve, you've got the review. The review, verse 7 I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. The shadow of death is already standing by. The shadow of death is already casting itself over Paul's cell. He knows that he's in a season where death could come at any moment. And so what he does, as is often the case when death approaches, he looks back, he reminisces, he revisits the past. Because guys, death has a unique way of focusing us. And it's good for that. A brush with death can often be a very sanctifying experience because it pulls you up short and you realize, you know what? I've got the wrong price tags on the wrong things. And if I had have died, I'm not sure I was in the best shape of my life to go and meet the Lord Jesus. And so death sobers us. Death challenges us. That's why Psalm 90 verse 12 says what? Lord, help me to number my days that I might apply my heart to wisdom. That's why Ecclesiastes 7, 1 to 4 says, better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Better to sit in a funeral service than to go to a barbecue party. Because you know what? Barbecues are fun, but not very life-changing. But when you sit in a funeral parlor and there's an open casket, and you realize how frail life is and how quick our days pass like a weaver's shuttle. You realize, you know what? I got to do a better 
job at managing my time. I got to do a better job at making choices. I got to spend my money more wisely. I got to do more in the church. I've not got to wait any longer till I share the gospel with that friend of mine. That's what death does. It sobers us up and it's doing it in Paul's life. There's an old Irish proverb that says, you know what? Live each day as if it were your last because someday it will be. And Paul senses that. And so he reviews his life and he looks back without regret. And I don't think verse seven is braggadocia. I think it's a sober, authentic retelling of a life well lived. And the point of it is to inspire Timothy to fulfill the ministry. So number one, verse seven, as he reviews his life, he can say, I have fought the good fight, the soldier. Paul depicts the Christian life as a struggle, as a battlefield, as a fight for survival in the face of the world around him, the flesh within him, and the devil nipping at his heels. His spiritual life is on the line each and every day. He's a target for assassination. He's living behind enemy lines, morally speaking. Every day is a moral minefield and one wrong step and he blows his legs right from out under him and collapses spiritually. Dangerous stuff. That's why actually in chapter two, he'll say what? Verse three, therefore, you must endure, Timothy, hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one entangled in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who is enlisted as a soldier. That's the picture. Guys, each of us have battles to fight. You're in battles right now for your moral purity, for the strengthening of your marriage, for the raising of your kids, for making a stand for Christ in the world. Those fights go on all the time. Every time we see each other, we need to realize that brother of mine is in the battle. This is Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy in the start of a message titled Finishing Well. If you'd like to replay this message or share it with friends and family, you'll find it online at ktt.org. And we're glad to have you with us today. As a faithful listener of Know the Truth, we want to say thank you for your support. It's your listening, sharing, and giving that keeps this Bible teaching program on the air, bringing the truth of God's Word to people across the country and abroad. And right now, I want to take a moment to invite you to partner with us by giving a one-time gift of any amount. Your support of $25 or $50, maybe $100 or more, will help the gospel reach more listeners so they can become more firmly rooted in the Word of God. Call us at 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. And when you give, you'll receive God vs. Government by Nathan Busnitz and James Coates. This riveting book uses real-life examples and provides guidance and wisdom on how to respond when the state encroaches upon the church and provides biblical answers about remaining discerning and faithful to our Heavenly Father's commands, even when society tells us to do otherwise. You'll definitely want to read it for yourself and share it with others. Just call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. If you'd prefer to write, address your envelope to Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. If you've never reached out before, we have a special gift for you, a refreshing devotional titled Resting in God's Daily Sufficiency. It's yours just for contacting us. 
Learn more at ktt.org. And one last thing, to stay up to date on upcoming events, ministry announcements, fellowship opportunities, and more, look for us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just search for Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Well, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us again tomorrow as Philip continues today's lesson titled Finishing Well. That's Friday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Mm-hmm.